Amen. Amen. That was good. I found I couldn't sing loud enough today. Did you feel that? Like I just couldn't get it out. I couldn't get enough out. Hey, Sarah, how you doing? Congratulations. You got engaged last week, I hear. Your fiance is still doing that internship in St. Vincent, and you just want me to leave right now. All right. So she's engaged to Chad Freeman, and uh, Chad's doing an internship down at Harvest in St. Vincent. And uh, Sarah went down to visit, and she came home with a ring. So isn't that nice? And, and it's her birthday today, too? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, do you want me to move on now? Okay. All right. Hey, up on the screen, let me show you a couple things. Harvest, uh, last week, uh, three brand new Harvest Bible chapels launched. And um, this week, two more. Uh, Cunningham Valley, that's the way they spell Cunningham in Pennsylvania, apparently. Uh, so uh, Cunningham Valley, Pennsylvania, Jeff and Sue Butala. Uh, again, this is a church that's in the region that we're overseeing, so we're real excited for them. And this is a restart, and I talked to Jeff on the phone this week and prayed with him, and I'm just telling him that he is so excited about what God is doing uh, in their a more rural community uh, in um, in Pennsylvania, and Clear Lake, Mason City, Iowa, John and Becky Tank are there. That's a great last name, and... Um, and uh, so we're excited about these two brand new Harvest Bible chapels. Let's rejoice in the Lord and all these new churches starting. <clears throat> it's uh, great to be part of, um, of a group of churches where every week it's a, a new number. Every week it's more people. Every week it's another opportunity to see people come to Christ. And uh, just excited. I hope you're excited about that. I hope you're excited to be part of that. And uh, today, um, we start on a new five-week series uh, simply called Gospel. And uh, I have to say that probably in the 11 years, just starting year 12 here, this might be uh, the most important series I've ever preached. And I say that um, knowing, too, that as I, I talked before uh, the service to a group of people who are leading us here today and just before we prayed, that this was one of the hardest uh, sermons for me to kind of just push it out and get it done. Because it's so important, because the weight of what we're going to talk about in the next five weeks is really the core of everything that we are. It's everything. What we're going to talk about concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to the very longing that every human being has on their hearts. And it speaks to, secondly, the very purpose for our existence. The reason why we have brand new churches this morning in Cunningham Valley and in Iowa is because we know that people have this longing and the mission that Christ has given to us is to speak to this longing by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other reason for us to be here this morning. Maybe you came to see your friends. Maybe you like the music. Maybe you like to be stimulated intellectually through the preaching. Whatever it is, it's all secondary to this. We exist as a church for the glory of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other reason why we're here. That's why this is so important. Because we're locking down the core of what we believe as a church and we're locking down the essence of what our longing is as human beings. We long for a relationship with our God. And so we preach that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and raised to new life. There is no other message. The Apostle Paul said simply in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. 
He went on to say that there is no other message, no other sermon that he could ever preach. And so, as we look at this brand new year upon us and these banners that proclaim that this is a year of going after the first things, the first of the first things that we must of necessity pursue is an understanding, a clearer and more intense understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the nature of this series is that we're going to be looking at various passages uh, throughout the scripture, especially in the New Testament, to understand the gospel. We're going to start with this, um, and then I'm going to pray. But I want you to see why this is the first among the first things. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, just the first few verses here. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we see so clearly from your word that um, what we're going to talk about today is of first importance. And so, God, I would pray simply that our eyes and our hearts would be open to hear your word, to know and to understand this gospel more completely, more fully, and to live it out, Father, in this world in a way that people will see Jesus Christ, see the glory of our God in our lives. I would pray for those who do not yet fully grasp the gospel, have not believed, that, God, there would be no delay for them, but that today would be the day of salvation for them. So, Father, move by your Holy Spirit in this room, in our hearts, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, well, a probably a good thing to do in that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, is to get that little phrase of first importance underlined in there so that you understand that this is the first amongst the first things. That we really want to understand the gospel. And as we get started, uh, so that there is no confusion about what we're talking about, because there can be so many different understandings or uh, definitions, if you will, of, of the word gospel, that we really lock down what we're talking about, that we carefully define it here. In its purest form, then, we're talking about the good news concerning Jesus Christ and the salvation from eternal punishment that he offers to us who are separated from God by our sin. The word gospel itself is used 91 times in the New Testament, and 67 of those times are in the Apostle Paul's writings. He had given his life to the gospel. In some of these places in the New Testament, it's variously described or qualified. Acts 20 calls it the gospel of the grace of God. Matthew 4, the gospel of the kingdom. Romans 1, the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 6, the gospel of peace. Ephesians 1 calls it the glorious gospel, the everlasting gospel, and the gospel of salvation. And all of it pointing to the same thing, this rescue from our sin to bring us back into a relationship with our God. One writer 
theologian wrote this, the gospel is the word about Jesus Christ and what he did for us in order to restore us to a right relationship with God. And so as we locked that down, we wanted to understand the gospel in terms of just five words to get it down to the essence of what it really is, to lock down five specific words that would fully describe what the gospel really is. And we would understand that locking these down would mean that if you only have four of these words, you don't have the gospel. You have a false gospel. You have an incomplete gospel, but you don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll admit that three of the five words are are more palatable, they're easier to handle, and there are gospels built around three of the five words. I'll take words one, four, and five, but don't talk to me about words two and three. Too heavy, too hard, too condemning, too demanding. That's an incomplete gospel. Every one of these messages in the next five weeks, every one of the words that will be proclaimed are absolutely essential if you are to be truly saved. If you have a misunderstanding about this or you've left part of this out, then the question you have to ask yourself is, do I have a relationship with Christ according to the scriptures? We want to lock it down according to the scriptures. And so, five words. Uh, This morning, the first of these words is, It's God. The first word is simply God. To accept the gospel is true. You must start with this. There is a God. There is a God. And the argument we make from the scriptures today is this. And everyone knows it. Everyone. Even the person in your life who completely denies the existence of God, the atheist, has something inside of them where they understand that there is, in fact, a God. They can't articulate it in that way, but it's there. There is a God. And in the end, everyone knows it. So let's take a look at this first. You know it from the creation. So no excuses. You know it from the creation, so no excuses. As Paul was laying out the gospel in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he started... With God and the creation. Chapter 1. He starts with God. And the creation. As he begins to explain the gospel. And because of that. He really articulates why no one has an excuse. For not having a relationship with God. It's right there. It's for everyone to see. And so if you're already ahead of me there. You're turning to Romans chapter 1. And uh, we see. Uh, Some critical verses here that tell us why we have no excuse. Let's start actually in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That, in fact, is the essence of our dilemma. Mike will talk more about that next week. The problem is that we're sinners, that we violated God's righteous and moral code. We separated ourselves from God. We are therefore unrighteous and uh, therefore are under the condemnation of God, his wrath. That's verse 18. Who by their unrighteousness, now this is us, because of our sin, who by their unrighteousness, notice that phrase, suppress the truth. You see, everyone knows there's a God, but a lot of people are suppressing the truth. But it's there, and no one can deny it, and there are no excuses. Verse 15, now here's why. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God's shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Notice that next phrase. So that they are without, what is it? Without excuse. Just look at the creation. Just look at the things that have been made by God. And you see God. You see his handiwork. Therefore you know that he exists. And we are without excuse. I would just say this. That every breakthrough, I'm not a science guy. I've already declared that openly here on several occasions. I followed the humanities through high school and went to Bible college and seminary. I was not, I'm not a science guy. I'm fascinated by it. I love to read about it. It's just when it starts to get real technical, I just don't get it. And so it's easy for me just to kind of begin to look at it and then to stand back in awe of what I see. And for me, I see the creator. And so I would just say this, every breakthrough in biology, every breakthrough in astrophysics, or every breakthrough in astronomy, every discovery that's made by scientists all over the world reveal more completely the complex design with which God created the universe. Far from refuting God, science is proving him. If only they would see it but they come with a presupposition when they attend to their studies that they're actually setting out to disprove God and that presupposition is the suppression of truth that Paul writes about in Romans 1. They're suppressing the truth. And in actual fact, they're declaring, they're worshiping God, they're proclaiming the very existence, every discovery, every little bit more that we learn about DNA, about the universe, It all points to God. It all points to a creator. And humanity is without excuse. Dr. Carl Whelan said this, it's obvious that this world didn't make itself. I love that. It's obvious. This world didn't make itself. The Discovery Institute, in defining what is known as intelligent design, I'm sure many of you have have heard of this, and intelligent design essentially says that uh, the design of things that we see calls out for a designer. Not everybody that believes in intelligent design is necessarily a creationist or even a Bible believer, but there are a lot of people who are now embracing the idea that because we see so much design, there must be a designer behind it, whoever he may be. Well, they said this, certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause not an undirected process such as natural selection. And more and more scientists are coming to the place where they're recognizing that design demands a designer. It's the way it is. When I look up at the stars, the night sky, and I see what's there, the design that holds them together, the perfect orbits, the perfect shapes, the perfect composition of everything and how intricately everything fits together and works together. And if only one part of it were not there, it would cease to exist. I marvel at who our God is. And I worship him. And I have this great sense in this moment as I acknowledge that there is indeed a God. How completely different from him that I am.
The word for this is transcendence. The simple way of saying it is that God is other. He's different than me, vastly different. I'm, I'm the creation. He is the creator. And he is a transcendent God. And in that moment, in the magnitude of the creation, knowing as vast as the universe is, as Isaiah tells us, that the Lord himself looks down on the creation. Heaven is his throne. He's sitting on the universe. The earth is his footstool. He has his feet up on our planet. That's our God. So transcendent. So other. And I feel in that moment, in the awesomeness of who he is, I don't know about you, but but how distant I am from him. How, how far apart, especially because of sin, the separation that exists between me and my God. I feel it. I sense it. I know it. It's a real experience in my life. He is transcendent. He is other than what I am. There is a God. And everyone knows it. Romans 1 tells us. The creation allows us to clearly perceive who he is. And everyone knows it. We are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, going on further, we, we know that there's a God from the longing that's even in our own hearts. Moving past the creation and all that we see in the empirical world, the outside world, we know it internally. There's a testimony inside of us that's telling us there's more to it than just this. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. This, by the way, Ecclesiastes is, it's like reading someone's journal. This is King Solomon's journal of his journey to understand what it means to be a worshiper and to live life on this planet. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has put eternity into a man's heart. God has put eternity into a man's heart. One commentator explains, man has a deep-seated sense of eternity, of purpose, of destiny. Man has that inside of himself. Another said, deny it not, we have the spark of deity inside of us. But the challenge for us here is that we fight it. Or we find that people will explain it away in in other ways. The pursuit of all that this life has to offer, the carpet diem, seize the moment, seize the day, live life to the fullest. All of that masks the reality that we're actually pretty unsettled and unsatisfied in life and that explains why we pursue all these other things why we go so hard at life to run after this thing or that thing the reality is that with this spark of deity inside of us this sense of the divine we are actually confused about life and its meaning and we find ourselves without direction puzzling on the three great questions that are in front of every human being. Where did we come from and 
What are we supposed to be doing in life? What's our purpose? And where are we going ultimately? Philosophers wax eloquent about these things. All of it is a reaching for the divine. It's an attempt to overcome the alienation that we actually have in our lives as human beings. The confusion's understandable. I mean, last year we studied, what was the book we studied last year? Somebody help me out. What was the, yeah, Hebrews, we studied that book, right? I didn't forget, I knew. Hebrews chapter 11, you remember this? It was the chapter on faith and all the great examples of the heroes of the faith in chapter 11 and started talking about Abraham and it described Abraham as being someone who was a stranger and an exile on earth. That's the way Abraham felt as a result of his faith. He felt like a stranger here. He felt like an exile. An exile doesn't really belong where they are. They belong somewhere else. And that's the way Abraham felt. In fact, uh, some of the translations say that he felt like an alien. In other words, as we live life down here, the more we understand about our God, about the gospel, the more we have a deep relationship with him, we understand the dissonance we have with regard to this world. We understand our alienation from the things of this world. And that stirring in our heart, that sense of the divine. I mean, that's only increased because of where we are. We don't belong here. This is not the way it was supposed to be. We belong in a different place. Abraham knew it. He felt it. He was made for something else, somewhere else. And the longing that we have for something outside of ourselves is a tacit acknowledgement that this world is ultimately, this world in all of its forms is ultimately unfulfilling. And yet human beings spend their years trying to fill their lives with meaning to no avail. The longing in our hearts that we fill with career and human relationships as great as they can be, the accumulation of wealth, the pursuit of leisure or by religion will never be filled. Never. Never. You're single, you think marriage will do it, it won't. Marriage can be great, but it's not going to solve your problems. It's not going to fulfill the longing in your heart. You're married. You want children. They're not going to do it for you. You think right now, if only I can go to the right school and find the right career and finish school and get into that job, then I'll feel fulfilled. And you won't. If only I could have a little bit more money. If only we could be set financially. Then then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. And I'm telling you, the most miserable people in the world have billions. It doesn't satisfy. It's unfulfilling. There may be temporary rushes, a little bit of a high, a fulfillment for a season. But then it dissipates and it's gone. All of these things are temporal. They're of this world. They're ultimately unfulfilling. They can't satisfy the sense of the divine that we have in our hearts. Because only God himself can fill that. Only Jesus Christ can fill that. Your heart longs for God. Listen to this now. Your heart longs for God and nothing else. Your heart longs for God 
and all those other things you're trying to put in there, it's not going to work. Your heart longs for God and nothing else. Well, there is a God. You know it from the creation, so no excuses. You know it from the longing in your heart, so no denying it. Finally, you know it because God's not that far from you. This is great news, isn't it? God's not that far from you. So quit complicating it. This is what we do. This, This is what we do. This is our thing. We complicate everything. This is why lawyers exist. I can say that because I'm pretty sure we have no lawyers in this church. Okay. Lawyers complicate everything. Politicians complicate everything. Everything is complicated. Teachers complicate things. They think they simplify things. Teachers don't simplify things. They complicate them. Life was simpler when I was in the earlier grades before I knew all this other stuff. And they started complicating things for me. We complicate everything. It's not just lawyers and politicians and teachers that do that. We understand God is a great and transcendent God that he offers us uh, even so, even even though he's so majestic and so awesome and so beyond us, he offers us in the simplicity of the gospel message a relationship with himself. He offers us proximity. He offers us his love and his care. It's amazing. The gospel is preached to us in simplicity and clarity. And so often that's what really messes with us. We don't understand it. Is it really that simple? Is it really Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone? Is it really as simple as that? Is it just a gift that God gives to me? Or or do I need to do something to earn that? Is there some way that I could merit what God is giving to me? Is there some way that I could pay him back for this? The answer to all those questions, by the way, help me out is, yeah, no, there isn't. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing that would commend me to God. Nothing. It's a simple gift. Just take it and believe in faith. Stop complicating what God has made so simple. But human beings preferred the complex philosophies of Plato and Aristotle. Let me take a course in philosophy. Let me study uh, thick books. And let me study all the other books that are written about the book. And all the variations on these original philosophies that were written. Let's read some Jean-Paul Sartre. Let's read some Kierkegaard and Kant. Let's really complicate this thing called life. Let's make it hard for people and let's charge them tuition to figure it out. That's what we're about as human beings. College textbooks have baffled students for centuries. They only give rise to more textbooks, more theories, yet more philosophies. The gospel is too folksy, too simple, too too plain, too rudimentary. It's The gospel isn't academic enough. It's as if we have created this formula. I'm beating a dead horse. I get it. That complicated equals better. That's the mantra of humanity. Complicated equals better. But God, 
who we know to be infinite and transcendent, is not some distant, unattainable, incomprehensible deity. Oh, sure, I understand. Flip over with me to Romans 11. There's a wonderful benediction here that I want you to see. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The answer to that is no one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He's transcendent. He's infinite. He's awesome. He's amazing. He's beyond me. And yet he's not distant and unattainable and incomprehensible. In fact, he's not actually that far from us. Acts chapter 17. Turn with me there. Acts 17. In this uh, chapter, the Apostle Paul, who's going around establishing churches, the Apostle Paul uh, comes to the city of Athens, the center of learning, the center of philosophy for the, for the, the whole world, really. Certainly for the Western world. And Paul goes to a place called the Areopagus, what's called Mars Hill. And there was a tribunal, a place where philosophers and teachers and people who just like to sit around and complicate things would get together. They would sip their lattes and talk about philosophy and the things of this world. And so Jesus, or Paul comes by speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. They were like, wow, we never heard about anything like this before, about a man actually coming back from the dead. Why don't you come on up and talk to us about this Jesus? They just wanted to hear another philosophy. Just one more thing to add to their library of things that they knew about. Well, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this is verse 22, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Isn't that great? They, they wanted to cover all the options. Like there's 150 temples in town. Let's build one more. 151st temple is uh, to the guy we don't know. Right? What therefore you were, I love Paul's transition here, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Notice now that they should seek God. That's the eternity in our hearts part, that we should seek him. And everybody's kind of finding their way to God in their own way in the hope that they might feel their way toward him. Don't you love this? The picture of this, people in your life who don't know Jesus, maybe you remember a time where you're just like trying to feel your way to God. And I get the sense here of someone being blind and kind of 
Uh, one of the translations actually uses the idea of groping about on the ground and I'm trying to find my way and I'm just kind of feeling things to figure out what they are because I can't perceive it, I can't see it. That they might feel their way toward him and, and find him. And I find this so comforting. And he's actually not that far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. We are indeed his offspring. He's actually not that far from each one of us. You see, this now is not speaking of his transcendence, that, that sense of him being other, but quite the opposite of that. And this is the paradox of who our God is. This speaks of his imminence, how close he is, how present he is in our lives. Our God is a transcendent God. Our God is also an imminent God. He's, he's near and he's knowable. You know, in vogue today among those who were, uh, philosophies change every generation or so and Kind of one of the things that's bigger today is postmodernism. Uh, most of us have, have grown up, we've all grown up really with the modernist mindset. But the postmodern mindset kind of deconstructs a lot of that and changes it and makes it different and looks at it in a kind of a different way. The modernist mindset, uh, for example, dismissed the very notion of a God. Anybody who's modern, anybody who is a, an enlightened thinker, I wouldn't actually believe that there's a deity of any kind. Humanity is the standard by which all things are measured. That's modernism in a nutshell. Postmodernism, though, wanted to move beyond that, saying oh, there is kind of something metaphysical going on. There is something kind of spiritual or quasi-spiritual. We don't want to completely dismiss the notion of the divine, probably acknowledging that they all did have this divine spark, this spark of deity inside of them. So postmodernism now becomes open to the idea that there is, in fact, a God. But this is what they'll say about him. You can't actually know who he is. There is a God. He's just not knowable. Now, listen, a lot of people in your life who do not embrace the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that you do will believe this exact thing. There is a God. We can't really know who it is. And it plays out with this primary doctrine, the doctrine of tolerance. It plays out in the doctrine of tolerance. In other words, it goes something like this. I had this very conversation just two days ago with some family members. You're a pious practicing Catholic. You're a strong Bible-believing evangelical. I don't believe there's a God at all. And we're all just making our way to the same place in the way that we feel is right. And we're all just tolerant of each other. And it's all going to work out in the end. Since we can't actually know who God is, it doesn't really matter what path you take. You see how this plays out? And all of a sudden, there's no urgency to the gospel anymore. But there's no real satisfaction either. There is a God, but he's unknowable. You believe what you believe about God. I'll believe what I believe about God. It's all cool. No matter how disparate the approach to God might be, since we can't really know who he is. And all that matters then is the effort. Put in some effort. All that matters then is the sincere search. But the sincere search leads you to be sincerely wrong about the true satisfaction that can ha be had only through Jesus Christ. 
But Paul here doesn't leave it that obscure. He commends their effort in acknowledging that they had at least put up this temple to the unknown God. He acknowledges that. He acknowledges that there was an effort there, that there is this feeling for God going on in their lives, and he esteems them for that. And then he uses that to proclaim to them, even as I am doing right now, that the only God that we can truly find satisfaction in, completeness, fulfillment, is in the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he gave his Son to become flesh like us, to experience life like us, and then to take our sin on himself, giving his life on the cross and being raised on the third day to new life. There is no other gospel. There is no other end. This is the way of life. Paul tells us in the passage that Athens was filled with temples to small g gods, just as And we think, oh, well, we're at least better than that. We don't have all of these temples to small g gods in our lives the way that the Athenians did. But, of course, we would be wrong about that. I mean, our streets are filled with uh, these temples. Let me give you some examples. And um, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness for hitting upon the, the temple that you prefer to go to. Because you're going to recognize all these temples and you do go to them. Let's start with the mall. Ooh, nervous laughter throughout the room. (laughs) How many people went to the temple of the mall just this week? Raise your hand. How many of you worked at the temple of the mall? You're high priestess of the mall. (laughs) Sorry, dear. She serves at the temple of the god of soap and fine fragrances. (laughs) The mall and car dealerships are temples to materialism. Queen's Park and the House of Parliament in Ottawa are temples to power. Cable companies and satellite companies and the internet are temples of sensuality today. We worship the idol of sports in arenas and stadiums. We couldn't leave out the guys. The idol of leisure. We worship on beaches and cruise ships at resorts and cottages. The God of entertainment at theaters. The God of religion in churches of all stripes and temples and mosques. The idol of family. In our own homes the idol of academia and the temple of our universities and colleges. And in all these ways, people are attempting to feel their way to God. And it's ultimately unfulfilling. It's far simpler than all of that. It requires only faith. It requires only that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in him crucified and raised from the dead. He's not that far from each one of us. It's really personal at this point. Because you can't come to this collectively. That too is an idol. That too is 
is a system, a complicated system of trying to get to God through parents or through religious tradition or through rites that we may have performed. This is very personal. Your mom and dad can't bring you to this. This is about you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. He's he's not that far from you. Wherever you're at with the Lord right now, if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, this is your moment. This is the day of salvation. This is when you say, God, I know that I may feel far from you, but you're not actually that far from me. I get it. And I want to stop going to these other temples to find satisfaction. I, I'm coming to the temple of the unknown God. I'm coming to Jesus Christ who has made himself known to me in this moment. And I confess my sin and I surrender my life to him right now. It's very personal. The Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you, to every one of us right now about just how close he is. God be the glory for that. Amen. He's so close. And he loves us so intently. Don't complicate it any further. Turn your life over to him. Right now. You don't need to wait for any other words to be spoken or anything else to happen. He's willing to give you a relationship with him in this very moment. You see, there is a God. And I believe that everyone knows it. I believe that from the scriptures. And the only question is, will you respond to him? Will you turn to him? I really believe, as I said at the outset, this being the core of everything we believe as a church, that God's going to use the next five weeks in a pretty significant way, not just in the lives of those who do not yet know Christ, Let's call them the unchurched and unsaved. People who are not here, who maybe in some other way are going to hear this message, or maybe you're going to have an opportunity to speak to them this week. Or maybe they're unchurched and unsaved in that they hardly ever come, but this is a time when they happen to show up, and today was their day. But this series isn't just for the unchurched, unsaved. This series is also for the churched, unsaved. Somebody said, I don't know who it was or how long ago it was, but one of the greatest mission fields is inside the evangelical church where there are so many people who think they're saved who actually aren't. People who are raised in the church, people who know the Bible, people who might even be baptized or made a profession of faith as a child, but they're not really saved. And if you looked at the fruit of their life, you'd really see that they aren't. Maybe you're here today and that's your deal. You're understanding the gospel more clearly now than you ever have before. But you're the churched unsaved. And I would appeal to you to come to faith in Christ. And then this series is also, I don't want any of us who are followers of Christ to think for a moment that the preaching of the gospel is irrelevant to us. Oh, I know this. I've heard this before. I don't need to hear it again. For the churched saved, we need to hear the gospel repeatedly. 
Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 15 was to repeat again the gospel, to do it again and again and again and again. 16 chapters in the book of Romans, he's writing to the believing church, 16 chapters in that letter. 11 of them devoted, 11 of the chapters devoted to an understanding of the gospel. Half of the book of Ephesians, half of the book of Colossians, all of it is giving us a complete understanding of the gospel. And when we as the followers of Christ rehearse the gospel over and over and over again, first thing it does is it compels us to worship our God. God, if you would do this for me, how can I not passionately, with all that I am, heart, soul, mind, and strength, worship my God. And if you don't worship your God in that way, my question is, what understanding do you have of the gospel and what Christ did for you? I turned to Cheryl as we were worshiping this morning. I just leaned over. I said, it's awesome in here today. It's awesome in here. Because we are understanding the gospel. We are understanding the word of God. We are pressing in in a greater way to worship him. I love that. Further, as we understand the gospel, believers, let me just say this. It will compel us to share this message with people who don't know it and don't have the benefit of it yet. I have not prepared our staff for this response time at all. Mike and I discussed it. We wanted to do this kind of together and we wanted our worship team and our leaders, our elders and all of them to be able to respond as the Holy Spirit led them to respond in this moment without any encumbrance or having it all planned out. So I'm gonna invite the worship team actually to take the stage right now. And as a believer who's already received the benefits of the gospel, as you understand it and as you study it and as you grasp it, again, your heart becomes more and more broken for those who don't have it who are not experiencing the benefits of all of this. Our hearts should be aching and breaking for those who are outside of Christ. I had a conversation last week with a woman and I fear I didn't give her the best counsel. Leave it in the hands of God, I said, as she wept over her son who does not know Christ. God is sovereign over all these things, I said. But we forget, of course, what the Apostle Paul wrote as he agonized over the plight of his Jewish countrymen. Again, through the first part of Romans, he pounds away at what it means to understand the gospel. And then he says this in chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was brokenhearted over those who didn't know Christ. This past Friday, I traveled to Montreal to spend time with a cousin who's ill. She's a couple years younger than me, family of three I just wanted to go and spend some time with her and perhaps have an opportunity. She and her sister both, both of my cousins, believe that life is merely biological. There's nothing beyond. You just cease to exist. There is no God. My heart broke for her. It it aches for her still. That she could be so close to death 
still not have enough of the divine spark inside of her, still pursuing other ways of bringing fulfillment. Our hearts should break. They should grieve as Paul grieves. We would desire that all of these would come to faith in Christ. I think increasingly as we understand the gospel, this is going to be true of us. So here's what I want to do this morning to close. I'm going to make this kind of an open-ended close, but we have some time here this morning. I've set up four tables, one on the sidewall, one here at the front, over here to my left, and on that sidewall as well. They're blank books. There's pens there. And I was thinking about what Pastor James was saying back in May when he was here, and as he prayed so earnestly for those in our lives who are lost, And he said, we need to pray as if they're already saved. And I thought about the book of Revelation and the Lamb's book of life being opened and the names that are found therein are the names of those who are saved. And I thought we would create our own book of life. And I want you to come brokenhearted. And I want you to write the names of your loved ones in these books. Loved ones who don't know Christ. I want our tears to stain these books. It's going to take some time to do this. The books are going to be out. I don't know. Maybe until Jesus comes back. Maybe this is just going to be our thing. And you can come in before a service on any week and go and books will be here and you can leaf through them and pray for the names and maybe when someone comes to Christ you'll find their name in the book and you'll just put a cross beside it. God answered our prayer. They found life in him. So this is the way it's going to be. The team's going to play. I'm going to invite you to come to one of the four books. It's going to take a while. It's all right. But if you're here today and maybe it's your name that needs to be in the book because you're not a follower of Christ yet. And I'm just going to stand up here at the front and I want you to come and talk to me and declare to me this morning that you've become a follower of Christ and found the forgiveness of your sins. So let me pray for a moment and then you can come and respond. After you write names in the books, maybe you would just want to come up here to the front and kneel down and pray for those names that you've written in the books. And this is the way we'll close our time here today. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you're close. Thank you for saving those of us who have believed in your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we want to pray in faith, believing that the names that are going to be written in these books, that these people are going to be saved. God, we know your will. We know your heart. We know that your word says that you don't desire that anyone should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. And God, we would pray that all of those names written in the book and will be written in the book would come to a knowledge of the truth, a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those in this moment who might be making a decision to follow Christ themselves. God, give them courage and faith to believe and to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus this morning. And I pray in his name. Amen.